You are listening to audio from Riverside Church. If you would like to check out more resources, please visit riverside.church. Well, thank you, Riversiders, Ray Birders, Bothers, any Bothers, and then Visitors, right? We got all the ers covered today. I'm glad that each one of you are here today. I'm Andrew. I think that's already been stated, but I'm excited to talk to you today about what's commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer. Everybody heard of the Lord's Prayer? Anybody heard of it? Anybody not heard of the Lord's Prayer? Other hand. All right. Well, we're going to talk about it today. Uh, We've spent the year ramping up to this prayer by unpacking the incredibly rich teaching of Jesus that comes before it. Uh, We've heard so much about the kingdom of God breaking into the world in this totally transforming way through Jesus. And Jesus has been teaching us what it looks like for the kingdom to break into our inner lives, transforming us from the inside out. Does anybody feel like you need a little transformation from the inside out sometimes? So last week was Easter, Resurrection Sunday. And I taught on the kingdom of God through the lens of one line from this prayer, which was, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So today... If I don't dwell as long on that line as you might expect, it's because I spent a few minutes on it last week, and you can listen to it online if you really want to, if you've got a hankering for that sort of thing. But today, I want to focus on how Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. He says, this is how you should pray. And I've often wondered myself, how should I pray? Anybody ever ask that question? Like, I want to pray, but like, how? Anybody ever had any questions about prayer? Um, you want to pray, but I, you, you just don't know exactly where to start, and you're not alone if you don't know how to pray. So today I'm going to read the passage, and when we get to the bold part, which I think is the second slide of the prayer, I'm going to ask you to read the words with me and pray with me, because this is the words that we were reading are a prayer. They are the Lord's Prayer. And there's a lot of different translations of the Lord's Prayer, so if you want to follow the screen, go for it. If you want to say whatever version you're accustomed to saying, Go for it. Nobody's going to stumble because of that. So uh, let's pray Matthew chapter 6 together. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Okay, I'll ask again. How many people have heard that prayer before or prayed it before? Oh, see, when I called it the Lord's Prayer, a lot less hands. Now you're like, oh, yeah, I know that one. Um, And how many people were wondering where the for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory part went? Okay. Yep, me too. So, but we're going to start from the beginning, starting in verse 8. When you pray, these are Jesus' words again. When you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So 
The intro gets to the heart of prayer and what prayer is about. It's about, is it about convincing God to do what I want him to do? Is that what prayer is about? All right. But that's how the pagans treat prayer. And that's what Jesus is pointing out, right? They go on and on and on and on and on in order to somehow manipulate maybe whatever deity they're praying to. And to that, Jesus assures us with these words, your father knows what you need before you ask him. And it's easy to misunderstand those words, right? Or misapply them. For the more task-oriented among us, we may throw our hands in the air and say, well, what's the point then? If, if he already knows what we're going to ask for, then what is the point? What are we even doing here? What is prayer if God already knows? But the assurance that your Father knows you is not about the content it's about the family relationship that exists between God and the person who prays. The fact that our Father knows what we need before we ask him shouldn't discourage us from praying. Oh, he already knows. No, 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 no. Rather, it takes the pressure off of prayer. Prayer doesn't have to be something that's like a pressure thing that I have to like get right or that I somehow have to incant the correct words. That's not what we're about in the church. We don't have to manipulate. We don't have to coerce. We don't have to convince God to do what I want him to do. And that isn't to say that the content of our prayers doesn't matter because there are times when we are going to plea and beg with God for him to do what we want him to do. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? It's okay. But that's not the point of prayer. At least not where we start. Every single prayer we utter is transformed because of the unique relationship we have with the Father. Which is a perfect segue into the first line of the prayer. This then is how you should pray, Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Jesus is the Son of God. Anybody heard that? That Jesus is the Son of God? So it would make perfect sense for him to pray, My Father. Right? He's the Son, so my Father. But he teaches his disciples to pray and includes us, includes the disciples and says we should pray, our Father. I admit that any family language, when it comes to God or, or anything, comes with baggage. And maybe, maybe especially with the word Father. It's inescapable for some people to utter the word Father as to be reminded of deep sadness, or fear, or abandonment, or anger, or violence. Some people, until you've done some pretty serious inner work, will really struggle to think of God as your father because that doesn't feel like a safe space. But I hope that as we keep praying, as we keep moving through the prayer, we will see our father as the redeemer of all of our painful histories. Can I say that again? I hope that we can see our father as the redeemer of all of our painful histories. that sharing our Father with the sisters and brothers in Christ that we have actually puts us in the same loving and compassionate family. And then there's the fact that our Father is in heaven, which reminds us that there is a place, there does exist a place where everything is right. Where all wrong has been made right, where all brokenness has been fixed, where mourning is turned to dancing, that place exists and our Father is in charge. Okay, let's move on. Hallowed be your name, 
Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is like a, a triplet, this section. It's three fa- phrases that are all concluded with the same words. So we don't pray it this way. We don't repeat it over and over. But all three of these things actually end with on earth as it is in heaven. So hallowed be your name on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That on earth as it is in heaven applies to all three of the things above it, not just the last one, which I think is pretty powerful. Our Father is in heaven, and we're seeing right now that this prayer is interested in God bringing that heaven in a very real sense right here to earth. How many people want this earth to look a little bit more heavenly? Come on. And there's three vital components. One, the first one is that our Father's name will need to be hallowed and honored. That's the first step for this place looking more like heaven than earth. For our Father's name to be hallowed and honored. To get a glimpse of this, another scripture that gets the same idea across is this idea that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the hallowing of God's name, is it not? And the hallowing of God's name, the honoring of God's name is essential to, number two, the coming of God's kingdom, which is the next thing we pray on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. All authority of heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus, and his kingdom is victorious over any other competing kingdoms. And that kingdom, his kingdom, the kingdom of God, is breaking onto the scene right here on earth. And then this looks like, number three, God's will being done, God's will being accomplished. His mercy extended, his healing accessible, his grace received, his justice being done, his righteousness everywhere you look, his truth revealed to all, his life conquering death, all on earth, just like it is in heaven. That is what we are praying for. Anybody want to see it? This is huge. This is sweeping. This is really big picture, heavenly stuff. But the next section of the prayer gets a little bit more, a little bit more earthy. For those of you who maybe put your hands in some dirt this weekend because it was so beautiful outside, this is where it gets a little dirty in a good way. Verse 11, give us today our daily bread. A little repetitive here, daily and today. Give us today our daily bread. But if you know the backstory of God's people in the wilderness in Exodus 16, the emphasis on both today and daily makes perfect sense. Because when the people of Israel wandered the wilderness in the Exodus, the Lord provided daily manna or bread for each day. But the bread was only for today. It could not be hoarded. It was only good on the day it was gathered, which taught God's people to rely on him not just when they felt like it, It taught God's people to rely on him each and every day. Jesus wants his followers to have that exact same posture towards God. Dependence is not just when it's convenient for me, but each and every day. Give us today our daily bread. And in fact, bread is all over. It's all over Scripture. It's all over Matthew's Gospel. Just a couple chapters before this in Matthew 4, so we're in Matthew 6 right now, but Matthew 4 The devil tempts Jesus to turn stones into, come on, even if you didn't know it, you could have guessed it perhaps, bread 
which he did not do, by the way. Jesus politely declined that, that temptation. And then several chapters later in Matthew 14 and 15, Jesus feeds two giant crowds with fish and... Oh, you're getting the hang of this now. And on the night before his crucifixion, Jesus would hand bread to his disciples and say to them, this is my body. Sorry, you all thought you were going to say bread again. I know. It, it, I set you up for failure there. That was my bad. Um, this is my body, but it was bread that he was talking about. Followers of Jesus never have to worry about having daily bread, whether literal physical bread or spiritual or sacramental bread, because God is our great provider, and he both provides directly to each one of us and in how he commands us to care for one another, such that nobody in our midst should be starving for bread for the necessities of life. In the kingdom of God, a person with no daily bread is a crisis, and we step up, right? Under our Father, in our family, the shared family of God, we care for one another because he cared for us, right? That's sort of the agreement. God cares for us, and we do care for one another. Which leads into the next verse, verse 12, and forgive us our debts, as we have forgiven our debtors. A lot has been written about this line of the prayer, about forgiveness. Matthew himself follows up on it right away to give a little context because he says, verse 14, for if you forgive people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Matthew may have clarified that, but he didn't make it any easier, did he? That's, that's intense words. It's a lot of pressure. It's hard teaching, and it's tempting to really try to ignore it. Our resistance to it might mean that we don't take Jesus very seriously, or we don't understand Jesus, or it's just a misunderstanding, or I, I don't know. We just don't want that much power, right? I don't want the ball to be in my court that much. I have to forgive somebody or, or I won't be forgiven. So let's look at what Jesus is saying. He's saying that when we ask for forgiveness, anybody ever asked God for forgiveness in your life? When we ask for forgiveness, baked into that request is the reality that we have already forgiven those who are in debt to us. Which... Not all of us have agreed to, right? Some of us are like, you know, I want you to forgive me. I don't want to forgive them. I want you to forgive me, Jesus. You're the gracious one. I don't have to be the bigger person here. You be the bigger person. Jesus says, come into my kingdom. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us is another translation. Debts, debtors, trespasses, trespassing against us. All of these are good in biblical translations. Matthew 6 uses the debt language. But the other languages all come from Jesus as well. But what's at stake here is forgiveness. And I think all of us think that forgiveness is pretty important and want it deeply. Does anybody here want to receive forgiveness? No, I do. I need it pretty regularly. Um, Scott McKnight does, a, I think, a great job succinctly outlining the logic of Jesus' teaching on forgiveness. So there's five points 
And some of them we'd love to hear, and some of them are hard for us to hear. So the first one is, oh, I, they're, they're not going to be on the screen. I'm sorry. God has graciously forgiven us. Good news? God has graciously forgiven us of some really big stuff. Two, therefore, we are to forgive others to extend God's grace. Right? We are agents of God's mercy. So we've been forgiven, so we forgive others. Number three, if we don't forgive others, we show that we are not forgiven ourselves. It's not like a consequence thing. It's just, if we're not forgiving others, we are demonstrating that we haven't been forgiven ourselves. Number four, forgiving, forgiven people forgive others. Good logic there. And then five, and this is really important, our forgiveness does not earn God's forgiveness. I don't earn God's forgiveness by forgiving others. He acted first. He is the forgiver. Adolf Schlatter said this, There is no serious prayer for forgiveness except on the lips of a forgiver. There's no serious prayer for forgiveness except on the lips of a forgiver. Are we the types of people who are able to forgive? And if so, guess what? Jesus wants to offer us all the forgiveness in the world. He wants to offer us all the forgiveness of the world no matter what. But we put up roadblocks sometimes. And a lot more could be said and should be said, but I really got to keep moving. Verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. James 1 says that no one is tempted by God. So why would we pray for God not to lead us into temptation if it's not in his character to do so? If the Bible tells us that God doesn't do that? Well, the question about whether or not God leads us into temptation isn't really the point here. The point is the prayer. Praying in full knowledge and trust that God will protect and rescue us from succumbing to temptation, testing, and the evil one. So 1 Corinthians 10.13, you may have heard this verse before. The Apostle Paul teaches this. He says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to mankind. Mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can endure it. See, no one lives outside of temptation or testing of some kind. If you experience temptation, if you feel like you're going through tests, you are human. That's not abnormal. And that stuff can be really hard. Temptations can be really hard. But those temptations and tests do not need to cripple us, and we do not need to give in to them. For the enemy has no control over us. That is the teaching of the kingdom. Temptation does not need to cripple us, and we do not need to give in to it, for the enemy has no power and no control over us. No, the will of our Father is that we live according to the kingdom. We're almost at the end, but I want to go back to something I glossed over back in verse 9, and that's this line. This, then, is how you should pray. Depending on your tradition, you may highly value memorized prayers. 
Or you may be very skeptical of memorized prayers. You may yourself be allergic to the fear of things becoming repetitive or rote. You may feel like mechanical recitation of words has no value or power. But if I hear one of my children singing along to a very inappropriate song, not that I've ever heard that, do I just say, oh, no big deal. Memorized words have no value or power, so I just don't even need to think about that. Would I say that? Would any other parents in the room say that? NBD, you know, we're all good. No, because we all understand that memorized words do have power for both good and for ill. So the Lord's Prayer has a lot to teach us about prayer. I wouldn't have gone verse by verse teaching through it if I didn't think that was true. But since the very beginning of the church, this prayer has been recited word for word. And the tag for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever was added to the church prayer books like immediately. It's almost as old as the Bible. It's not actually in the Bible, but it's almost as old as the Bible. The church has been praying those words. Most early Christians would pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day, which if you do the math means they'd pray the Lord's Prayer over a thousand times a year. I think you'd memorize something if you said it a thousand times a year. I, th I think maybe. <laughs> we always have to guard our hearts against callousness and mindlessness and thoughtlessness and carelessness, right? But the possibility of callousness and mindlessness and thoughtlessness and carelessness by no means means it's a bad thing to do or say the same things over and over throughout our lives. It's not a bad thing to do or say the same things over and over throughout our lives. We do lots of things over and over throughout our lives. Breathing, super repetitive, right? <laughs> Sleeping every night, that's just super repetitive, right? Dribbling a basketball, super repetitive, but it's fun. Eating the same meals over and over again, again, super repetitive. Is repetition a bad thing? It depends on what you're repeating, right? It 100% depends on what you are repeating. I remember in my first year of ministry, final story, visiting a woman who was in her last days. Her health had declined and she'd become basically unresponsive. She hadn't spoken a single word in weeks. I prayed for her. I read a psalm over her. And as I spoke familiar words to her, she perked up. Again, she hadn't spoken in weeks. She recited Psalm 23 with me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And after we recited the psalm together, I moved to the Lord's Prayer. and We prayed together, Our Father, who art in heaven. This woman had not spoken, had not spoken a single word. Barely alive, barely breathing. But she prayed those words in her last days because she had prayed those words so much that they had soaked into her heart and her body almost at the cellular level. So when you reach the end of your days, what words, what repetitions, what will have soaked into your heart and your body at the cellular level? I say this as someone with an absolute stockpile of song lyrics and movie quotes just living rent-free in my brain at all times, okay? A lot of it's not real important. Some of it's pretty funny. 
Some of those may stick with me forever, but what will anchor me? What words will I have spoken so many times that they've worn grooves in my soul? I'm not talking about ruts. I'm talking about grooves that make the daily journey more pleasant, wearing speed bumps flat, guiding my path, showing me the way to go, the way to the kingdom of heaven, the way of our Father's hallowed name, his kingdom come and his will being done. Will I have leaned on our Father for my daily provisions? and been a relentless forgiver of those who have wronged me? Will the fruit of the Lord's prayer be borne out in my life? May our Lord's prayer be borne out in each and every one of us. Amen. Thank you for listening to Riverside Church. For more resources, visit riverside.church.